Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined this week by guest co-hosts Amy Stebbins and Hauke Berheide. More on them in one second. We're live on 89.3 FM WNUR, Evanston, Chicago. Now, you want your voice heard, right? 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about? Call us. 847-866-9687. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. All right, tonight, stage director Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheider are working on a new opera for children. They talk about what you need to have when you're writing an opera for kids. And plus some picky little critics tackled Dean Burry's opera for children, The Scorpion Sting, which was at Lyric Unlimited here in Chicago last weekend. But first, Amy and Hauke update you on what's happening in opera in German-speaking Europe, including details on some important changes of artistic leadership that have taken place in the past year, including the promotion of several women at major houses. And then at 9.40, it's Monday evening quarterback with creative consultant Oliver Camacho. Although he's not live in studio tonight because he's sitting this one out, recovering from five operas in four days. Oliver checks in with reviews of Verdi's Rigoletto at Lyric Opera of Chicago and Sir John Elliott Gardner's Monteverdi trilogy. Got a great show for you tonight. Oh, my God, it's been a crazy week. Weather has been crazy. Sports has been crazy. If you saw that Justin Taylor three-run homer in the bottom of the ninth last night, you were probably crying. Lovely red beard, though. That man, lovely red beard. My son was absolutely beside himself that the Cubbies lost. A lot of a lot of baseball left to play, though. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. <laughs> oh, opera box score. WNUR 89.3 FM. Stebbins and Bearheider. In the house tonight, get those thinking caps on. Amy Stebbins, how are you? Hi, George. I'm doing fine. How are you? You look lovely. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. That was a, yeah, compliment. Uh, <laughs> Hauke Berheide, how are you? I'm fine, and I'm very happy to be back. Thank you. You also look lovely. Awesome. That was also <laughs> a... <laughs> Compliment. All right. So, look, you guys have been in and out of this country. How many times have you been to Germany since the beginning of the summer? Um, well, oh, I think 
three times I've been there. Because I was there when the summer began. So therefore, does, it, does that count? Yeah, I actually think it's that counts. It counts. Yeah. yeah, I was there in June and then back in Chicago in July. And then we were working with colleagues from Germany in Ukraine for a bit in August. And then we went back to Germany in September. And I will head back there again on Wednesday. Oh, my goodness. You fly business class, right? <laughs> How's the food in Ukraine, by the way? It's amazing, particularly the Georgian food. <laughs> I, I have had Georgian food, it's actually. It's amazing. It's a lot of sour cream and paprika. Indeed, and a lot of uh, grilled vegetables. And particularly of interest is that the Ukrainian currency has uh, dropped considerably since the war began, unfortunately. Okay. So you, can, you, too, can live like a king in Ukraine. <laughs> what are the big stories coming out of German-speaking Europe right now? Let's start with opera houses that have had new directions in leadership. And there were two houses that you guys mentioned of note. Some of you might remember that we are, were permanently um, um, annoyed about the fact that there are so few female um, artist directors around. Now things seem to change. Um, there are two major houses in Germany which are getting new or already have gotten um, new artistic directors, which are Braunschweig which is kind of in the middle of Germany. They have Dagmar Schlingmann um, and Isabel Ostermann. The one is the artistic director, the other one the opera director. Mm -hmm. And they're doing a fantastic job. They have already opened their season. And I can only say it looks crazy. Um, and the other new um, person, person on the, in the field is like um, is Hanover. They're getting yeah. um, an American lady. Um, it's Laura Berman, who is right now um, opera director in Basel, and she's going to Hanover. Which means that there are, like in the middle of Germany, in the heart, um, a group of three ladies, and they are really changing the, the discourse, I guess. Why is Hanover so important? Because it's huge. <laughs> um, and it's kind of a non-fancy huge opera house. I mean, it's easy to do a good programming when you're in Berlin, where you have all those intellectuals and artists and things and in Hanover there are just normal people who want to see a good show in the evening um, comparable to Frankfurt for example and those houses very often have the difficulty to attract people and I guess she will manage it and she takes the challenge to do new pieces um, to do challenging topics and still to gather people Comparable to Braunschweig, which is very close to them at the end, although smaller. I think it might be interesting to hear uh, the hear about the program that Isabella Ostermann has created for this first season. It's pretty, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking when you compare it to any of the programs anywhere here in it the has U.S. It's totally crazy. I mean, Braunschweig is still we call this an A house, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have a large orchestra, they have um, ballet, they have um, 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 Sprechtheater. Where's that, Amy? Drama. Uh, drama. But yeah. they also have this um, opera part. So, of course, they open with a Don Carlo. Um, not so surprising. But then they are doing now a new, sh a new show, um, um, which is premiering at the end of October, Rivale, by the Italian composer Lucia Ronchetti. So it's a new piece. It's a co-production with the Berlin State Opera. It's a women composer. It's a woman composer. Then they are doing Hansel and Gretel to make some money over Christmas. But then, in January, they are doing Your Press by Don Cage. Um, after, wow. th after that, they are doing La Porte de la Legge, which is a piece written, I think, 2009 or something for um, by, by the Italian um, um, composer um, um, Charino. 
and then they are doing Dizim Totsun. They're doing Clemenza, Di Tito, which is Mozart, not so surprising, Elektra, also just normal, okay, but then La Voix Humaine and Tagebuch eines Verschollenen. They are doing... Um, Almost entirely late 20th century yeah. work. <laughs> let, me, let me just say, this is what I love about Hauke, is he's like, yeah, they're doing Elektra, that's totally normal. <laughs> Any opera house in this country <laughs> of the size of Braunschweig, they just would, they wouldn't do Elektra. Here a couple of years ago with um, oh the Scottish director what's his name David uh, McVicker thanks David McVicker yeah here yeah. meaning lyric opera of yes, Chicago yes yes okay it was a good, it was a good production Isabel Osterman is also directing the production of Rivale mm-hmm. yes as well I just want to make that point that it's not uncommon for the opera director the again the head of the opera mm-hmm. wing yep. to be directing some, if not all, of the pieces that are being programmed. Not all of the pieces, but definitely some. I mean, uh, it just there's sort of, let's say, a, a bit of a, a controversy about whether or not it's better to have a cultural manager or someone from dramaturgy heading a house, or if it's better to have an artist running the house. I mean, Isabella Osterman has been working at the, uh, I'm sorry, at the Berlin State Opera for, gosh, like 12 years as the... Um, mm in a number of positions and uh, been directing at other theaters on the side. And this is really the first opportunity for her to consolidate her, her work in one space with one ensemble. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think it's also about making a statement at the place to say, um, this is what we are standing for. And the season has got a beautiful title. It's called um, Böhm, um, um, Braunschweig liegt am Meere, which means Braunschweig um, lies at the sea. Which is of course wrong, but refers to a famous poem, which is about possibility of art to make almost everything happen and um, yeah I think I mean the press reviews are hymn, uh, hymnatic can I say this what's it like uh, they're, they're very praiseful yeah, praiseful <laughs> praiseful yeah. yes yeah. yes yeah. I've not been to either of mm. these theaters one place that I have been where both of you got to see a show was the um, Oper Frankfurt mm-hmm. and what did you see there we saw there um, a production of Samuel Barber's Vanessa. Ah, yes. Featuring that f- the mezzo-soprano national anthem, Must the Winter Come So Soon. Indeed. If I had a nickel for every time I'd heard that in an audition, Amy. Uh, but that's a very American aria to hear. I mean, uh, in in Germany, and I'd say in continental Europe generally, uh, Barber is, is very rarely performed. And getting to see something like Vanessa, I mean, it would be a rarity here, but it's even in a place that's doing so much 20th century rep like Germany or Austria or um, Switzerland, they're not frequently doing works by Barber. Germans actually think Barber only wrote for a string orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> now they know better. But this, yeah. I, I love this show, by mm-hmm. the way. I love Vanessa. Um, and Giancarlo Minotti wrote the libretto. Mm-hmm. How about that? I would love to direct this, actually, as well. And I was in... Frankfurt, as part of the fellowship that I was on, that that Amy did as well, the Humboldt Fellowship, I was in Frankfurt at the first dramaturgical presentation of this production. This was back in 2002. Obviously, the show is is being revived now. Uh, Katarina Toma is the director. Amy, what, if anything, should we know about her? About Katarina Toma? Yeah. Any little nuggets that you know? Have you seen any of her other? I'm actually completely unfamiliar with her, but I very much enjoyed her production. 
All I will say is that she was extremely articulate. Again, you don't think of such an American piece being explained so clearly as she did in that first dramaturgical meeting. I mean, she had really tapped into that piece. The text is in English, of course, mm -hmm. by Manati. And the design, maybe you guys can explain the, the design to the listeners. What I liked very much is that it, I mean, untypical for the normal way we, we're doing it in, in opera in Germany, um, the director decided to, first of all, explain the story to the audience, mm -hmm. which was very necessary because just no one was familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And so she did a very good job about showing the characters, showing their conflicts, making them visible, ma making them sensible. Um, and yeah, I mean, we saw kind of an opened house, like like a villa, and from one side there was just the winter breaking in, I would say. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that was very suggestive, um, and it worked out very well, yeah. And in that space, kind of her fantasies of other characters took place, and there were sometimes um, extras or dancers who were doubling roles from the, mm -hmm. the scenes that were taking place to sort of demonstrate what was taking place in the, in the mind of the lead character. Um, in my opinion, Oprah Frankfurt has always been an opera house that is either overlooked or punches above its weight or whatever turn of phrase that you want to say. Like, it just is constantly producing the most consistently good work mm -hmm. in Germany. Why is that? That's because they have a phenomenal artistic director named Bernd Löbe who has been running it for, gosh, what, 20, how many, 20 how many years? How could you know? Well, I mean, he came into office, can I say this, into a mm -hmm. run, I guess. <laughs> Before he was uh, um, chief advisor to the house, but before that he was a journalist, um, and hmm. he offers this interesting mixture between just insane love for opera on the one hand, but on the other hand he's smart enough to always to go a little bit further than others would go. He manages to have new pieces, to have pieces which are 20 years old, but also to do Debussy, but the pieces no one knows or to have Samuel Barrow, who sounds beautiful and the audience can find their way into it, but just no one in Europe knows enough about Barber. I mean, we have to stay on top of this, though, of course, with without... So Frankfurt is not a state theater, it's a city theater. It's paid for by the city of Frankfurt, which is, of course, a very wealthy theater. And um, not all of the productions in Frankfurt are successful, and also Lubbe would never claim that um, because he doesn't have to. Uh, right. And so a large part of the success that he's been able to have has been able to take risks, and, he, and he's very good at taking risks, um, but it's not devastating to the house if one risk goes awry. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. George Cedarquist hanging out with Stemmons and Berheide tonight, getting a little postcard from... Germany, they're back in town briefly. Amy's heading back to Germany on Wednesday, catching up a little bit here on the show. When you were in Germany, you also saw a production in Wiesbaden, which, unlike the Opera House in Frankfurt, is a... It's going to sound confusing. It is a Stadt theater, right, of the state of Hessen, as opposed to the Stadt, the city of Frankfurt. What did you see in Wiesbaden? Hauke. We saw Schönerland, which means mm, beautiful land or something, by a Danish-German composer called Sören Nils Eichberg. He's born in 1937, uh, question, <laughs> 1973, so he's youngish, I would say, um, at least compared to Mozart. Um, <laughs> and, right, no, um, 
and he m he wrote a piece on a um, topic which was very much in the air when he got the commission. It's about refugees, mm -hmm. and he tries to deal with the challenge to write an opera about refugees while actually not knowing what that means. And, and you can very clearly see, I mean, you have like people who present refugees on stage, but you also have like a group of opera makers on stage who try to make a piece about refugees. So it's an opera about people tr who try to make an opera about refugees. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an opera about the impossibility of making an opera about the experience of being a refugee. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, that's yeah. a okay. That's a pretty deep thought yeah. there. How how do you how do you judge the success of that? I mean, was it moving? I think one one part that was really important was the excitement that the local community had that they were creating a new opera piece that was being premiered at their theater, and um, you know the sort of celebration after the premiere was really just filled with excitement and people were very informed about the piece and they were you know speaking with the con uh, with the uh, composer and the librettist and there was this wonderful sort of sense of um I mean I grew up in community theater in New Hampshire and it, it wasn't quite that feeling but something along the lines of mm. uh you know a, a society investing in something together and that was really lovely to see how uh, what was the music like there was a lot of very touching music and there was also a lot of music which tried to serve the scenes. I'm sometimes wasn't so sure about how far the reflection of what the the niveau of style was going to refer to was was really as deep as one had to think in order to let it go. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was kind of a bit it was it was a bit easy. I mean yeah. it was kind of a film score like um, and and I found that a bit problematic. But on the other hand, it was moving and the audience loved it. And uh, just one sense, the title "Em Schönerland" means um, beautiful land and goes back to a folk song, which means there is no other beautiful land than this one. And this is, has, is, of course, an offering to the refugees or maybe a way to describe the difficulty to find one owns Schöner Land. It's a great opera house as well, Wiesbaden. They got the cheapest schnitzel and pommes this side of the Rhine. <laughs> <laughs> and they have beer on tap in the uh, cantina. That's where all the real work happens, by the way, right, is in the cantina around those subsidized beers <laughs> they have a beautiful one yeah the cantina there is very nice hey after the break Stebbins and Bear had to talk about what it takes to write an opera for children Chalk Talk is up next and it's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM stick around live from Chicago you're listening to Opera Box Score more right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play -play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. 
Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks, Norm, for the intro. That's right, Chalk Talk. Second segment of the show, George Cedarquist here on Opera Box Score. It's WNUR 89.3 FM, number in the studio 847-866-9687. Let us know if you've been to Germany recently and what you saw. I'm with two very close friends Stage director Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheide. Welcome back to the show, both of you. Hello. Hey. You two are working on an opera for children. Tell us the title and tell us what it's about. All right. So it's minor correction. It's it's not an opera. It's a concert with an actor, a singer, and a puppet. Um, but it's going to, I guess, be on the main stage of the opera. So we'll just call it an opera. In any case, it's called, and this is going to require some explanation, as these things always do, Einer hat einen Vogel. And that means Einer, it's a name in German, uh, has a bird. And has a bird in German is kind of similar to the uh, English uh, turn of phrase, you know, get angry about something or... Uh, to get in a flap? To freak out, yeah, yeah. to get in a flap. But when, in the German is actually more more to do with being crazy, like to... Having a spleen. Yeah, that <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody knows Something that. lost in translation there, <laughs> <Okay>. baby. <laughs> um, you know, to sort of, to be a little bit nut, nutty. So our lead character is Einar. And Aina has decided that he doesn't like dealing with other people's problems anymore and is going to shut himself off in a lighthouse in the middle of an island and just take care of himself and not have to worry about all the terrible things happening around him because he's just not responsible for them. And what happens on his little island is where our opera begins with a big storm. And the storm blows out all the light in the lighthouse and he has to wake up and he's very frustrated and then he sees the audience and, you know... uh, sort of introduces himself. Um, And this storm, it turns out, has brought a little bird into his house. And this is our puppet. And the bird needs help. And it's annoying. Yeah, it's a very loud bird and it's Mm -hmm. annoying, but the bird needs help and the bird can't leave. So Einar eventually decides to trap the bird in a cage and, uh, you know, puts a blanket over it to make it shut up because he doesn't like the bird. Uh, the storm comes back, however, and begins to flood the lighthouse. And as it's flooding the lighthouse, he realizes that the bird can escape because of its wings, and he lets the bird free. And then he realizes that he, too, is a bird and flies out to escape from the storm to go to another place for safety. Love it. It sounds so simple and so straightforward. Do you feel like it's pretty easy to follow? It has to be. It's for children. Uh, with children, you really get one shot. If it doesn't... If you don't land it in the fir- on the first try, uh, the kids are gone, and then you've just got like 40 minutes of noise from your audience, and it's uncontrollable. And Amy, you're writing the libretto, am I right? Indeed, but it's very much a collaborative process. I mean, at the end, it, the text will be in German, so Hauke will certainly be doing a big polish over, but the story development we're working on right now. Hauke, so when you're composing the music for a piece like this for children, what sort of things are in your head? First of all, I think I have no time, in the sense of I have to be quick um, on the in the music on the stage to make everything clear immediately. So children have a very short um, attention span. Attention span. So I've, I've, I've had the experience with other pieces I did. I, most of the time was way too long. Some moments really worked out well. Mm. Um, so I've, I've prepared some some examples. 
um, to show what I, with the moment when it actually worked. This is from another show I did, I think, in 2008. It was about something called a criminal concert. Um, it was a collaboration with a theater in, in Germany called Theater, theater Kontrapunkt, Theater Counterpoint. Um, and so there is some kind of a scenic music, um, like a, um, someone sitting in a, in a rocket chair, an old one. It's really noi noisy and old and broken, the, um, the rocket chair, and sounds like that. All right, take a listen. So that's the rocking chair excerpt. And it's, and it's broken, and it's squeaking, and the murderer enters. And the children watch him, and they are told to warn the one sitting in the, in the chair. And that sounds like that. As you can tell with these sound files, one of the great things about working for children is that they um, that they sort of give you immediate feedback. I mean, they're, they're like 19th century opera spectators. They're just yeah. like talking the whole time and responding, and it's really easy to, to sort of check in that they're with you um, because they're uh, you know they'll stand up and talk about what they're seeing, or they'll sit there and fall asleep or cry and want to leave. Yeah, and while we develop it, we are also trying to tell the story as far as it develops to like every child we just get mm. um, in our hands to figure out if it, if if the story works. Yeah, yeah, and and then I mean just to come back the last soundbite. Um, then there is a funeral because the composer is dead. <laughs> And the curtain falls. Right. I mean, in this case, there are many things happening after because it's a criminal concert and then there are two, um, two police officers trying to figure out what actually happened and at the end no one is dead and so on. I mean, yeah, it's for children. In our opera, we have a crazy bird. 
and the crazy bird is probably represented by a singer in re using other instruments. I don't know if we, if we have time for the last thing. Um, I've got a small sound by which is from a totally different piece, something I wrote in 2012, and it's being played by Ensemble Modern and the singers um, um, Marisol Montalvo from New York. Um, and it's kind of a crazy bird music, you will hear that. Again, what I love about this music that I'm hearing, and this is written for children. It's written for adults, too. Obviously, kids are not going to necessarily go to the opera house by themselves. But that music, to me, does not seem to patronize children. That is complex music in different meters and different tonalities. And when we give that to our children, we are saying, you can listen to this. You don't need everything in a major key and in duple meter. Do you know what I'm saying? I totally agree. And my experience is that it's rather the parents who are problematic to listen to things than children. Children are just open to everything. They can eat olives and they can listen to um, crazy new music. <laughs> exactly. They'll eat olives and then they'll like drink a glass of milk. Right. Afterwards. Yeah. And or the at rest the same time. Or at the same time. Yeah. They just dunk them right in. <laughs> the Scorpion Sting is a opera for children which is at lyric unlimited uh it just finished its run this past weekend and, and then it's touring the neighborhoods around chicago for the next month you're listening to opera box or by the way george cedarquist with amy stebbins and hauke Berheide on the show this opera was 45 minutes long and the plot was complex i would say it was an opera within an opera. Oliver went to see the show as well, and he gave a, some props to the cast, uh, specifically Mathen Black, who's been on the show, as well as Julia Hardin. But you don't have to take my word for it. I did not go alone. I took two very picky critics with me, and I'm going to let you hear what they had to say about the show. Pass or fail. Here's Monday evening quarterback. This past weekend was The Scorpion's Sting, a opera for children by Dean Burry at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And uh, in the studio with me today, two critics, Ben Cedarquist and Julia Cedarquist. So you saw The Scorpion's Sting... 
yesterday at Lyric Unlimited. Let me guess your review. Really boring and not very fun. No. Totally not. Not. Besides, Daddy, you are so wrong. So, 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 so wrong. Um, first of all, they were trying to find Isis um, to help the Temple of Isis um, to help to help help the Master. Okay, I think I got most of that. Ben, is there any part of the story that we missed? So, um, these hieroglyphics, they, when they shake this rattle, the high, some hieroglyphics come to life, and they can, and then they can read them, and they can tell the story of how to cure the scorpion sting. Well, you guys certainly aren't giving away any spoilers to the opera. Now, let's talk about the music of this show. Ben, how would you describe the music in Scorpion Sting? Opera. It's definitely an operetta. It's an operetta because they're talking and they're singing. Julia, when you listen to the music, how did it make you feel? Good, because also when the music is very high instead of low notes, it made me feel happy at the happy parts and sad at the sad parts. Let's talk about the design of the production. How would you describe the scenic design for this show? Egyptian. Definitely ancient Egypt. They've got some hieroglyphics and some other hieroglyphics and a little carpet and they've got some Egyptian gods. I think it's like it's exactly what you need for Egypt. But also they were trying to find Isis um um because Isis um um was was the healing one. Julia, if I can, let's get back to talking about the design of the piece. Julia, I know you're really into clothes and costumes. How would you describe the costumes in this up? Ah, uh, that's so pretty. Ben, is there anything you might want to add to that description? The Egyptian the Egyptians liked a lot of different things. Let's talk about the performers then. It's a cast of four and I would say the roles are pretty evenly spread. What can you tell us about the performance of the baritone, Mathen Black? He sang the role of Osiris. I thought it was, I thought Mathen Black did a pretty good job. The costumes were perfect. His costume was perfect. I like the colors that they used. His singing was always Pretty on key, and he was doing a pretty good job. Somebody else that really stuck out to me was Julia Hardin, and she sang the role of Nephthys, Tahamet, and Molly Brown, one of the students on the archaeological dig that discovers this temple. Ben, what's your take on Julia Hardin's performance? She didn't do that good. She could do better. And why do you think that was? She could do better. She could prov- She could definitely project her voice more. Those are pretty harsh words. Julia, over to you. Was there a specific performer who's singing you really enjoyed? No. No. If you had to give a letter grade, Julia, to the opera as a whole, what letter grade would you give? Uh, B plus. And why the B plus? Uh, because, um, they did a good job, but not too of a good job. Ben, over to you. What letter grade are you going to give the Scorpion Sting? F plus. I'm joking. I'm not going to give it an F plus. 
maybe an A minus or a C minus might do it. Well, there's a big difference between those two grades. Because they worked pretty hard. So I see you're doing kind of an A minus for effort and a C minus for the production as a whole. Now, I know that both of you see a lot of TV, certainly. You see a lot of theater. You see a lot of movies, of course. And I know last week you saw My Little Pony, the movie. Which did you prefer between that and the opera? I really don't know. I guess My Little Pony, it might be My Little Pony because My Little Pony is animated. And, um, but it's hard to tell. I like My Little Pony and I also like e ancient Egypt and archaeology. It's hard to tell. Kind of a split decision there from Ben Cedarquist. Julia, over to you. Which did you prefer, My Little Pony the movie or The Scorpion Sting? Um, I preferred both because they were both nice. Thanks so much, both of you, for hanging out on the show. Thank you and goodbye. So, hey, there you have it. Harsh critics. Those are the coolest critics I've heard. They're kind of a pain in the butt, actually. Well, they're much more, I'd say, uh, judicious than we are. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is what I will say about the Scorpion Sting, is that the plot was difficult to follow. It was an opera within an opera. And while the music was certainly tonal and the staging definitely moved the piece along, I felt like it could be more complex. Indeed, Oliver, his take on it was that he said that uh, he thinks that opera for children might as well be actual standard canon opera, even if it's abridged with plots, simplified, and narrations. What do you two think of that opinion? Is that, is that a reasonable thing? I mean, obviously you guys are in the business of creating new operas. Is there a place for doing the standard canon well, Even if it's boiled down, you know, a magic flute in 60 minutes. Well, I think people need to know about the canon, the history of that. I would, as a composer, prefer to just to write new pieces, just in general. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, this is the general question. Is an opera house about selling what they already have? Then they need to sell out what they have and to make um, the magic flute li look like a Disney piece. Um, or are they going to write something which is important to people in the city where the theater is, and then they should just write a new piece? It's a, just a decision. But it's not even just a question for opera houses. I mean, the construction of a canon is sort of an inherent component of any kind of artistic leadership role or institutional role. I mean, in literature, you have... I mean, there's like a you know, comic strip versions of classic literature for children to read. And this is just part of sort of familiarizing them with the valuable, ob you know, cultural objects of history. I think that's a really good parallel, actually, between opera and the performing arts and then the literary arts as well and the way that books can be abridged, books can be put into graphic form. Hey, uh, stick around. we got lots more on the show for you tonight. Oliver... Camacho plays Monday evening quarterback and reviews Verdi's Rigoletto at Lyric Opera of Chicago and Sir John Elliot Gardner's Monteverdi trilogy. <laughs> it's love-hate for Oliver, but it's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3. <laughs> Chicago, 
You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then, give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George Tobias and Oliver. Well, it's certainly Opera Box Score, WNUR, 89.3 FM. It's George Cedarquist for sure, but Oliver's sitting this one out. That man has been seeing so many operas in the past week, it probably hurts to sit down. Tobias Wright, uh, out of the state, working on some projects. That's why I'm joined by the phenomenal... Stebbins and Bearhide. I thank you both so much, Amy and Hauka, for being on the show tonight. We're having a blast. That's great. We've been talking about a postcard from Germany, which these two have been recapping what's happening in Germany. We've talked about children's opera. These two are working on a new music theater piece with puppet for children. (laughs) Uh, Oliver's coming up next. He submitted this uh, review of Rigoletto at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and also the Monteverdi trilogy. I completely missed the Monteverdi. Did either of you see it? We can't afford to go to the opera, George. <laughs> you just you, you just make it. <laughs> you don't go to it. it. Uh, it sounded amazing. I mean... It did. It looked, it looked fabulous. Yeah. You've you got to really love that music, I think, to kind of do all three of those shows. Uh, what about the Rigoletto at Lyric? Did either of you see that? Again... I just came here like a week ago. All right. So and it, and, and I didn't dead end. I didn't see other but I had I had no interest in seeing it. You know, I've uh don't know if I've ever seen Rigoletto in person, but I'm going to wait. You know, when I saw the production photos on this one, I, I figured, you know, what, I'm going to I'm going to sit this one out. Oliver Camacho, he talks about it as well. Check out his take. Italian soprano Rosa Feola makes her lyric opera debut in the role of Gilda in the current production of Rigoletto. We have heard Feola recently in Chicago as a part of Riccardo Muti's uh, Falstaff production and a Mahler concert. Uh, She certainly seems to be a favorite of Maestro Muti, 
And now Lyric Opera audiences are finally seeing why. She stole the show. She's an elegant singer with an amazing technique. Uh, the voice is beautiful. The acting is on point. And the Verdi style is idiomatic. If one were to register a small complaint about her performance in this production, it would be that she does not yet seem spontaneous in this music. It's a hard thing to pull off. For those of you who love this opera, you know that there are opportunities to steal attention away from the drama and the rest of the cast and put the focus on your singing. Faola uh, is very well integrated into this production and uh, is a polite colleague. Matthew Polanzani, of course, sings the Duke beautifully. Uh, one would expect no less. And the former Ryan Opera Center, now star Verdi baritone Quinn Kelsey, gets the job done. I'm very disappointed in the set design. This is a set from I don't know when, maybe the 90s uh, or the 80s. It's not clear. Uh, from San Francisco, apparently inspired by some surrealist Italian painting. I did not take the time to read the program before the performance began. Uh, one would think that seeing Rigoletto, you don't need to read the program. Um, there, the set design itself uh, had a very raked stage and almost primary color, dark lighting, and um, didn't really serve the drama, for me at least. Um, Gilda's uh, hideaway home that Rigoletto keeps for her looks like a parking garage. And the costumes suggest period costumes, but nobody seemed to have been instructed in how to behave in a period costume because I felt like I was watching 21st century performers uh, in costumes that just felt awkward on them. And the crowd scenes were ridiculous, I have to say. I'm really sorry, but, you know, if you're going to have that many people on stage, give them something to do, give them a focus, give them a character. Don't let them just stand around and watch Rigoletto sing Cortigiani and not react to it. Costume design was by Constance Hoffman. Set design, uh, a borrowed production from San Francisco Opera, was by Michael Jurgen. And uh, the stage director is listed as E. Lauren Meeker. Marco Armiliato conducted. Sir John Elliot Gardner's Monteverdi 450 project is something I've been talking about for months now. And it finally happened. And it exceeded my expectations. Uh, the Orfeo was magical. The 
ensemble and some of the instrumentalists, especially the uh, lute and theorbo players, processed onto stage. And it was a magical moment during the opening toccata. Christian Adam as Orfeo was superb. I've never been so moved by a performance in Monteverdi, um, which is music that can sometimes feel intellectual um, because I'm always listening for the musical rhetoric, but he made the music come alive and I didn't have to think about what I was hearing. I just had to experience it. And it was a comprehensive performance, which I will probably never forget. He is now the standard for which I will judge other singers in this role. Lea Desandre also made a huge impression in the role of the messenger. Heartbreaking. The Return of Ulysses was less successful only if because the mezzo-soprano cast in the role of Penelope, one of the critical roles, did not yet seem comfortable in this cast. The Monteverdi 450 project has been touring for almost seven months now. And Mariana Pizzolato, Italian mezzo-soprano, was added to the cast for the American leg of the tour. And probably by the time they get to New York, uh, she will be perfect. Uh, But the role is a bit low for this bel canto mezzo-soprano. The coronation epopea literally blew me away. The role of Nero, portrayed by countertenor Justin Kim, who we interviewed last week, was simply one of the best performances I've ever witnessed in my life. In particular, uh, in the confrontation scene between Nero and Seneca, in which Justin Kim sang probably a high B in the soprano range and then jumped down the octave into chest voice uh, was brilliant. It was one of those moments that you hear in opera that you can't believe your ears and you almost want to interrupt the action with, you know, a scream of delight. I really wish I could have interrupted the show uh, and given him the applause he deserved just for that line. Uh, It was an example of an impetuous youth throwing a tantrum at his elder and Gianluca Burato, who, if Justin Kim wasn't in the show, would have easily been the best thing about it, uh, a bass from Italy, um, walks off stage in silence and the audience was like in shock at what they just heard and Burlato's reaction to it was perfect. That scene was immediately followed by the second duet between Popea and Nero. And Hanna Bashklova uh, kind of just sauntered onto the scene and made a perfect tender entrance to contrast the violence that just happened on stage. And suddenly, Justin Kim was a child, like a vulnerable, scared, sweet child reacting to her. And just the range of tone quality and drama between the previous scene and that one was incredible. Uh, I know that as singers, we're supposed to be able to do this, to show these facets, to be able to turn emotions on a dime. And I read about these things and I want them and I imagine them, but I rarely witness them. And what we witnessed as an audience yesterday was just that. And uh, it was one of those performances that I think everybody in the audience agreed that they just saw something amazing. Uh, Hanna Bashklova, um, an early music specialist, one might even describe her as a medieval specialist, uh, was Popea. Uh, she was also Minerva in The Return of Ulysses. 
and she was also um, Eurydice and La Musica in Orfeo. She had a lot of singing to do over the four-day span of the Monteverdi 450 Festival. And uh, she was most successful as La Musica. She opened the entire engagement uh, as La Musica in the prologue of Orfeo, uh, had the audience spellbound, and then she picked up a small harp or like a lyre and accompanied herself in La Musica scene. And that set the bar so high for what was to come. Uh, it was simply amazing. If you are in New York, um, the Monteverdi 450 engagement is part of the White Lights Festival. Do what you can to see it. It was amazing, in particular the Orfeo and the Popea. Uh, there were many great singers in this cast. Um, Carlo Vistoli as Ottone in Popea. Anna Dennis as Melanto and Zachary Wilder as Urimako with an extended love duet right after Penelope's first act, Lament, was one of the highlights of the engagement. Christian Adam as Ulysses' son, Telemaco, especially uh, in his reunion duet with Furio Zanazi, his father, Ulysses, in The Return of Ulysses, was another highlight of this engagement. The chorus in Orfeo and in Return of Ulysses was brilliant, so in tune, so stylish, so uh, together as an ensemble. The theorbo players in general were amazing, especially in Orfeo. They get to follow around the singers as they're placed in various parts of the auditorium. The harp player, who is center stage uh, for all three operas, uh, almost a character in these operas. Gianluca Burato, uh, who did double duty as Plutone and Caronte in Orfeo, and as the suitor Antino in Ulysses, as well as the god Neptune. And of course, as Seneca, um, his voice was huge, and his first entrance in all three operas made it sound like he was miked. He wasn't, of course, but uh, he has just that type of resonance and is a gorgeous, gorgeous singer, perfect for this type of music. But I can easily imagine him in bel canto, uh, in the you know low Mozart roles, maybe even in Verdi. Um, it's that sizable of a voice. And Silvia Frigato, uh, who played the double role of Amore and Valletto in Coronation Popea, adorable singer, maybe five foot tall, Perfect for Cupid, uh, hilarious as Valletto, obviously great Italian diction, being Italian, a very sparkly voice, and just really fun to watch on stage. There's actually so much that I'm probably forgetting about this production. All the singers are beautiful. Everybody was obviously very stylish. Uh, it looked gorgeous. There's no sets. It's just choral risers and costumes that suggest people's hierarchy and ranks. Not all of the costumes were successful, but they were always helping you remember who was who in these shows because a lot of these singers played multiple roles. Yeah, this was a stunning thing to witness. I'm so happy that I was able to see all three operas. Um, it really was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I recommend it highly. And you can find some of these videos on YouTube if you look hard. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Well, thank you, Oliver Camacho, for those reviews. Man, this hour goes fast. 
It's been Opera Box Score on WNUR. George Cedarquist here with Amy Stebbins and Halka Bear Haida. Good call, bad call. Amy Stebbins, you get to go first. Super. I've got a future good call for the uh, Opera House in Stuttgart and their intendant, their artistic director, Yossi Villa, who decided um, not to hold the premiere on October 22nd of uh, Russian director Kirill Serebrenikov's uh, Hansel and Gretel, as uh, people may have heard in the summer. Um, he was arrested under the charges of ostensibly embezzling money. He's been a big critic of Putin's regime. And uh, he was supposed to do this uh, production of Hansel and Gretel, and they decided instead to wait until he's out, hopefully on October 19th, and we'll hold a special event in lieu of the uh, premiere. How can bear hide a good call, bad call? I've got a good call, and my good call is Iceland. It's cold there, but they are pretty hot if it comes to, foot, to soccer, because <laughs> their soccer team, they are all half professionals, but they made it to the Soccer World Cup, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> Unlike the U.S. Oh, that was painful. But a nice sports-related thing. Um, I got a great call this week. Yuval Sharon, who is the artistic director of the industry in Los Angeles, that's a contemporary opera company, has won a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's originally from Chicago. Is that right, Amy? Yeah, he's oh. a Chicago boy. He should be directing at the Lyric next about season. That. We'll put a link to him and to his company on our website. Check out the type of work they're doing. It's pretty groundbreaking. Congrats to him on that award. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And just leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Amy Stebbins and Helka Berheide, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your rally cap on Go Cubs Go. We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central when John Klum, Professor Emeritus of Theater Studies and English at Duke University, is live in studio to talk opera and to introduce a brand new segment. Join us. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.